Hi, I'm Gary David. And I'm Adam Gamwell. Welcome to Experience by Design, the podcast where we explore experience designs of all kinds. Now, looking at the Life Celebrations website, you might be surprised to discover that their business is actually funeral and memorial services. But with the bright colors and designs comes a philosophy of elevating memorial experiences to another level. Now, this realization that funerals had become too routine and, well, to be honest, a little bit lifeless, led our guest Jim Cummings on a quest to not only provide unique experiences, but also learn from Joe Pine and Jim Gilmore of the Experience Economy and receive an Experience Economy Expert Certification. In this episode, we talk about how funeral directors are really, in essence, community organizers, and how funerals are in many ways an opportunity to bring people together. On that point, we also discuss how funerals, when they left people's homes and entered funeral homes themselves, became a bit institutionalized and in how they're trying to bring back the hominess and the personalization into these events. We also discussed the cast of characters that he has met in his experience design journey and what he has learned from other industries and how he has incorporated those learnings into what he does. We explore how his journey really started with a couple of guys from Philly starting trouble, as a couple of guys from Philly will often do, mm -hmm. and how that has expanded to now being a national network of funeral homes working with life celebrations. And this network has become crucially important in this moment as funeral directors have been trying to cope with COVID-19 and the impacts on their business and on their psyche as well. And how by coming together through life celebrations, they've actually been able to form a community of support and purpose. Hope you enjoy the chat. That just, that just tends to be the world we live in right now, where the, the unstoppable interruptions of everyday life. I, mean, I even have a hard time focusing from task to task because of the constant interruptions. Yeah, and, and if they're not physically happening, in the back of your mind, you're expecting something. So you're, you're almost doing it to yourself, I think, half the time. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, and so, yeah. You have to get the question a lot. Well, I, I should guess that one of the questions I have for you is a question I like to ask a lot of people. When you're at a social event, when we used to do social events, if we can remember back that far, yeah. and people ask you what you do for a living and you tell them, what's the reaction? Well, you know, years ago, um, people would pretend to run away from you. Um, you know, it's nice to see you, but I hope I don't see you again anytime soon. Right. But today... Um, I tell people I'm a funeral director, but then when I start to explain the, uh, the why of what we do, not, not more of the what and how, but the why, um, and the purpose behind it and start to explain the grieving and healing. And, you know, the fact that society is at such a crazy pace that somebody lived five or 105 years, um, that life Every life is, is unique to itself. And in order for people to be able to grieve and heal and move on, they need to reflect and remember and share and take the time to do that. And uh, time is definitely the currency of an experience. So 
very shortly into the conversation, if they feel like listening, we usually have a pretty deep discussion that is rewarding for them, me, and then, you know, information gets out there and hopefully they share that with, with people that they talk to. I love that phrase, time is the currency of, of an experience. And it, you know, I think that one of the things that this moment has forced a lot of people to think about is that aspect of time and how we manage time or how I should put it more appropriately, time has managed us. Yes. And I guess, you know, I've not had a chance, I guess I would say fortunately to be at many funerals, but I guess I, you know, it's like when you get older, after you graduate uh, college, you go to a lot of weddings. Right. And then when you, you know, you, a few years after that, then a lot of people have kids and then, then there's retirement parties. And I guess there's a certain age where the funeral experience starts to enter in more prominently into people's everyday lives. Well, my experience over the years, uh, many years ago would be the husband or the wife would pull up in front of the funeral home and Jerry Gibnish and I joke about this all the time. You know, honey, leave the car running. I'll be out in five minutes. And you run and you sign the book. You fly across right. the front of the room. You tell everybody how sorry you are. You get hit in the chest with a prayer card and out the door you go. Um, that's, <laughs> that's really not accomplishing anything for anybody because I just realized, to be honest with you, probably in the last two years, one of the biggest neglected people at the time of a funeral are the co-workers. I mean, we all spend, not now, but traditionally, 80% of our lives at work. But right. yet, when somebody dies, they're kind of like an and that's added to the, to the party. They're, they're, they're expected to be there, uh, sign the book, tell everybody how sorry they were, and then they're just all supposed to jump back out because it wasn't anybody that they were related to. But here, we've realized, and I've talked to Pine and Gill more extensively about this, what do you do when you go in the office after you sat next to somebody for even 10 years and you look over and they're gone? And that was a perfect thing to wake me up to the fact that funerals cannot just be about the deceased or just about right. the immediate family. It's got to it's got to reach out to everybody that touched that person's life. And that's that's hard work at the end of the day for us to do that. It's a really great point in that, you know, I work as an academic um, and even when I'm working as a consultant, I'm still working by myself primarily. Mm -hmm. And even academia is primarily a solitary pursuit. And I, I would lose track as well, now that you mention it, of the the way in which that loss can impact coworkers' lives and and that part of the experience because we do spend so much time. Um, and even, you know, after a person retires, that well, opportunity I guess I guess I guess, you know, the funeral after retirement is that is like the one opportunity to get everybody to get the gang back together, so to speak. Well, you know, sometimes it's unfortunate. A family will come in and sit with us and, and say, well, you know what? She's been retired for 11 years now, and a lot of the people that she worked with are gone. We don't know where they are. And, you know, before we were doing this many years ago, I would just concede and say, oh, okay, I understand. So we won't worry about them. But lo and behold, to your point, there should be more of those people reached out to. I mean, every funeral director writes up, what I hope is a meaningful, extensive death notice or an obituary. But the only thing we do is, is we send it to the family to be proofed or it gets fired off to the, to the media or the newspaper. 
And it's so easy today, to your point earlier about technology, to get that out to groups, clubs, organizations, religious affiliations, fraternal groups. Um, it's, it's unbelievable. And once we started to do that, especially here years ago in Philadelphia in the Givnish homes, um, we were amazed at the people that would come up out of the weeds that were willing to contribute and share. And that is invaluable. You know, there's nothing better than somebody coming up and grabbing you on the shoulder and reminding you of a, of a, of a fond experience from 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 or 50 years ago. It, it just goes right into your soul and it's actually medicine. And, right. uh, it, it's incredible. I, I, I just want to mention something. I had a, uh, Sure. Baseball coach when I was 12 years old. His name was Ernie Burrell. And when I became a funeral director, I prearranged his funeral. Anyway, long story short, Ernie um, dies and I'm up actually up in New England with my group up there. And I get a phone call on like a Tuesday that the family's looking for me. Ernie passed away. So I quickly call them. And I explained to them that I can't come home and I won't be home until Friday night. And they said, we'll wait, which was pretty incredible. So they did wait. And when I showed up at the funeral home Saturday morning, I said my hellos to the family who I hadn't seen in many, many years. And his son, who was there, who was now in his 40s, was the was the bad boy on the team. And we had some fond memories and I was kneeling at the casket and I could hear the son say to somebody that came up to him, he said, you see that guy kneeling at the casket? He said, yes. He says, he's a funeral director. It was a friend of my dad. He played for my dad 50 years ago and flew home from new England to be here for his funeral. He said, what do you think about that? And I heard that and I reached up and I grabbed Ernie's arm. And I said, boy, am I lucky to be here with you, coach. I mean, hmm. what that meant to me and what that meant to the family and what that may have meant to the gentleman that was talking to Ernie's son, I don't know. But those experiences, and there was memorabilia there. We had, we had done a lot of work behind the scenes with what we do here at Life Celebration. And we had pictures of the teams. And this guy was a phenomenal baseball guy, Philadelphia baseball guy. And – uh that's just a small anecdotal moment in the life of a life celebration event and what things mean to families. And just imagine if Ernie would have died during this pandemic, right? what that funeral would have been like. So there's so many moments that have been missed here that, that we're doing everything we can to try to regather people and reconnect people when the time comes so that they can come and have moments like that. So there's a lot there, and I guess it's a good time to talk about, you know, what is Life Celebrations, what does it do, and how did it, how did it come into being? How was it, you know, how did you create it? Well, that's the funny part. Um, Jerry Givnish and I agreed 20 years ago that we were both horribly frustrated with being funeral directors. Um, you know the movie with Bill Murray, Groundhog Day, and with all due respect to every citizen who's experienced the loss, uh, it was becoming that. You know, uh, someone would pass away, you would do all the things behind the scenes, uh, schedule the event with the third parties, the cemetery, the crematory, the church, the minister, whatever it was, and uh, and then you'd 
you'd, you'd finish that and you'd go to the next one. It was almost like name, rank and serial number. Right. I was to the point with it where I was going to, I was going to go do something else. I actually had an opportunity to take a position with another firm outside of funeral service. And I met Jerry for lunch one day, we grew up together and I told him that. And at first it wasn't very pretty. He was very annoyed with the fact that I grew up with them and they helped put me through mortuary college and everything. And, but when the dust settled, he said, I feel the same way that you do, if, <laughs> if I can be honest. So anyway, long story short, we both agreed at that point to take time out of our schedule every week and begin to work on something and research what we could do to change the experience, believe it or not, for ourselves, that we could survive in the businesses that we had. Lo and behold, not far into it, we realized what we were really doing was trying to change the experience for the consumer. So Jerry had read the book, The Experience Economy, that at that time was probably a few years old. Right. And he said to me one day, I'm going to call these guys and, and get a hold of them and see if we can talk to them. And I, I kind of laughed. I was going out of the funeral home. I said, OK, good. I'll see you when I get back. <laughs> well, well, these two guys, Pine and Gilmore, wound up being just a couple of regular guys. And next thing you know, we're in communication. So we, we were desperate to talk to somebody because we realized the desperate situation of funeral service. People were not taking the time even way back then, almost 20 years ago, to effectively grieve and heal and share. So they had no time. You know, off the back of that book, they were racing all over the globe and giving speeches and talks and workshops. So Jim Gilmore said, well, I've got about 10 minutes or 20 minutes on a Monday morning. I can meet you at the coffee shop <laughs> at the Mandalay Bay in Las Vegas. <laughs> Perfect. So three of us, Jerry Givnish, Dan Selecki, and myself, we, we jump on an airplane and we fly out to Las Vegas for a 20-minute meeting at, at the coffee shop in Mandalay Bay. And Gilmore um, – is enamored by what we're trying to do. And he had done right. work inside a funeral service years before that and wasn't warmly received, um, out of the box thinking. Um, so he was intrigued. So we agreed to stay for the rest of his conference. They let us sit in. And that was the catalyst for what I never dreamed of, which was totally changing the conversation and realizing, thanks to Pine and Gilmore, Joe Pine was instrumental in, in reminding me all the time that a consumer, no matter what business they're dealing with, learns best in their own time in their own space. So think about that. So here we are uh, at the funeral home that everybody that drives by every day in their community hopes they never, ever have to go to. They're going to be the one person that's here when the rapture happens and they're just going to go up into the clouds and never experience the death and never have to make funeral right. arrangements. We all, even I tell myself that. So um, it, it was amazing that we were able to create a system as to where we educate the consumer in their own time, in their own space. Even when there's a death at 11 o'clock at night or three in the morning, we have tangible and digital instruments that have been designed over all these years with the help of Pine and Gilmore and a plethora of other incredible people that we have met through the Experience Economy Group. We, we know people internationally. I mean, we've been to workshops with people from Lego, 
um, Chick-fil-A, Coca-Cola, uh, Robert Stevens that started the Geek Squad. I mean, we've been able to network with some great thinkers out, out there. That's amazing. And they've helped us develop a deliverable that when someone passes away, we get to the family. It has to be simple, right? Because they're probably in some state of shock. Um, I know you and I talked about that DABDA model when I was at home a couple of weeks ago, that right. denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance thing that we all learn in mortuary school. And then we pass the test and kindly tuck away. Um, boy, is that critical. Now I lean on that when I talk almost every time as recently as yesterday, because we're not trained to be in the right frame of mind when families are now, don't get me wrong. And I don't want to insult any other funeral directors out there. But I believe, and so do a lot of other professional people, that if you're going to be a funeral director, you should probably have a, a minimum of an associate's degree in psychology to do so. But, you know, if you go to a mortuary college like I did, you get psych one and psych two, you pass the test and out the door you go. And one day somebody says, here's the file. There's a family in the back. Somebody just died or lost their life some way. You're not prepared. So well, I, th to I think there's a lot. It is, and I think, you know, along with the psychology thing, I think going with Lego, there's some real synergies there because Lego has done a lot to market different kinds of workplaces in their Lego building sets. Why not a uh, Lego funeral home? I think well, that there's that might be a nice Christmas gift to give the kids. Well, you know what's funny? They're out there. They have they actually have Lego cemeteries and stuff like that but <laughs> do they really yeah yeah it's pretty crazy i actually uh the first one i think i saw was with one of our members out in uh, wisconsin rapids i walked into the funeral home to train their staff and i guess it was early afternoon and his son came in and he's sitting there playing with something and i looked at it and i said wow you know where'd you get this and he told me and um joe pine does extensive work the people at Lego. And I think it was the last time we were down in Atlanta, if I recall correctly, um, they were there. And uh, I also was tipped off to the, the mindset of European entrepreneurs is uh, creatively different than ours. Um, they do a lot more uh, time-centric focusing on where is your time best spent, where here in America, we just we just get down in our three point stance and and you know the quarterback says go and we plow across the line 100 miles an hour and sometimes we wind up spending half the day <laughs> before we slow ourselves right. down to realize what we ran past. Um, right, right, right. It's crazy. It's crazy. You know, you mentioned the psychology part of it, and it makes what you just really. Well, let me step back here for a second. My earliest recollections of funeral homes comes from the movie Phantasm, which is probably not a great representation of funeral home directors, given that they were <laughs> aliens that were spent to kill people. <laughs> Setting that aside for a second, funeral homes really are community centers. I mean, you're making me rethink it, right? That right. it's a it's a place for community to come together, and it's 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 funeral directors, as you're describing them, aren't just persons to facilitate uh, this this ritualistic practice, but it's really to bring and create community, to bring people together for the purposes of creating community around this event of a person passing. Is well, that, would you say that's accurate? That's better than accurate. Uh, funny enough, right? So let's go back to Waltham, Massachusetts 11 years ago. Frank Joyce decides he's going to 
he wants to be a member of Life Celebration. He comes down here to Philadelphia. And, you know, it was really funny because Frank and I, we and Jerry, we just all hit it off immediately. He, he wasn't in the building five minutes and I knew he was going to join. Well, the only reason I bring that up is when I went up to train Frank and his staff, uh, there's a woman that's a member of our experience economy group. And she's a what we call a certified experience economy expert, myself, my daughter and a couple of Guinness uh, boys are licensed too by Pine and Gilmore. But Renee Malone said to me when she was helping me build the curriculum as we continue to move forward, which is what she does. She said, Jimmy, since we never realized that America had lost its sense of community until 9-11 happened. Right. And then that happened and people just kind of looked around and realized that it had, it had drifted away. But after that, she said that was the strongest necessary element that needed to be added back into the culture of the American people, that sense of community. So you're exactly right, Gary. And it really, as a sociologist, this is what we kind of do. We study groups, right? And we study what, you know, makes a group a group or a culture a culture and, and the dynamics that get involved when that happens. And going back to your description of what life celebration does is to magnify the role of experiences, both past and present in, in that cultural kind of, you know, synergy and in, in being the cultural glue of providing this common experience or remembering shared experiences as well. And then the important element, I guess, of the narrative, the, the, the telling of stories that further cements that community glue through those shared experiences. Well, now you, you hit a hot button with me because the, the funny thing with Pine and Gilmore, they see me training a lot. I've trained with them. I've given presentations with them. And I change their models so that they adapt to funeral service because no two lives are the same. And sometimes Joe Pine, he actually saw me, saw something on Facebook one day while I was training a firm where I had changed his 4E model, uh, where it starts with, uh, I take it from education to entertainment to escapist to aesthetics. And Joe starts it with entertainment. And I said, you can't start with entertainment in our world. You know what I mean? We have to right. educate. Well, Joe saw, I changed it. I drew it up on a, on a whiteboard in a funeral home and, and he texted me. He said, you changed my model again. You know, Joe, <laughs> um, but it, it, it's, it's just unbelievable how we lean on the frameworks and methodologies of the experience economy to, to realize what you're talking about. Um, but, you know, the funny thing is, I think I mentioned this to you when we were on the phone the last time. Um, I have funeral homes come in here, and there's one coming in tomorrow from North Jersey to check us out. And the last time I had somebody in, they said, you know, this is an incredible program. I can't wait to, to get involved and to get the training and everything. They said, you would think there would be a line down the hallway out to the parking lot. And I said, well, there never is. And he said, well, why do you think that is? I said, it's too much work. Right. It's, it's, it's not blowing up the whole model. Don't get me wrong. There's so many incredible things that funeral homes have done really over the centuries that we learn from, because I, I want to mention something. This is not throwing the baby out with the bathwater because I believe that many of the reasons why people are not spending the time 
is because we've moved too quickly away from traditions, values, faith, spirituality, family, and everything else. My, my mother's father, his name was Joseph Finn. He owned a company called Philadelphia Funeral Supply. He was not a funeral director. Um, he died at the age of 84, I think, when I was probably about six or seven years old. So he was, he was very old. But I remember him telling stories when I was a little kid where they used to go around. He had a crew that if you bought caskets and, and uh, funeral accessories or whatever it was from him, everything was in the house. So they had a crew that would go around and take windows out of homes. So that oh, they wow. could get the casket into the house because the <laughs> doors back then were all too small. Right, right. But, you know, when I was a kid, I used to think about that from a, uh, what would I say, from a functional perspective. But then after I got into this, I started to reflect back on some of my grandfather's stories. And I realized, of course, they did it in the home because that's where the life is lived. The, all you have to do to find right. out about somebody is somehow get in their house. You don't need to hire a detective. You don't need to, you don't need anything. Just get in the house. And that's something funny enough that I learned with the Gibnish boys way back in the, in the late seventies and early eighties, when we would go to someone's residence to prearrange a funeral. And that's where you would really be able to detail only and exactly what would be perfect for their funeral services. But you know what? There was such a disconnect, and there has been for most funeral homes. You would do that on a pre-need side and then come back and put your at-need funeral director's hat on and do it a completely different way, which scares the hell out of me that I actually did that, but I'm guilty of it myself. It would seem then, you know, it's, that is really interesting about being in the home and being out of the home because if it's in my home, I have a lot of control – as a as a family member over what goes on because it's in my house. Once it leaves my home and goes to experts, the professionalization of funeral services, I lose a lot of that control. And then I, I guess the, the the journey of it is this antiseptic version that you described, which became the norm in in funeral services, almost like this Henry Ford assembly line of checking boxes, running through the program and out versus this, you know, unique experience based on in the person's home, the person's culture, ethnicity, the decorations, the neighbors, the neighborhood, all of that made for unique experiences. And then it becomes this more sterilized in a way experience once it becomes professionalized in funeral centers. Do I have that right? You do. And and I wanted to mention this earlier, but my, my four concussions leaped up and took it away from me. But I remembered what I wanted to say earlier. Um, Pine and Gilmore's definition of a theme is, is the dominant idea, organizing principle, and underlying concept that influences every element of an experience. Uh, early on, I said, once again, boldly, because I love to start trouble with these two. I said, sure. that's, that's wrong. And he said, what do, you, what do you mean it's wrong? In the <laughs> book, everybody else thought it was great. I said, it's wrong. Right. I said, when it comes to a life, it needs to be pluralized. And that's when I started to teach that. I said, if you're going to plan a life celebration and you're going to really have a robust walk back down the path of somebody's life, it's got to include the dominant ideas, organizing principles and underlying concepts that influence every element of an experience. Because no one life, I don't care who you are, 
has only one theme. It's, it's unbelievable what you can find out about somebody that nobody ever knew that is incredibly valuable to their existence and so meaningful to everybody. I had a guy one time that passed away and he was the typical go to work, come home, raise kids, do what you do on the weekends. And it went on for 50 years and he died. And then somebody in the arrangements said to me, you know, on top of the garage, there's a room up there that he used to go up there and paint. He would never let anybody in mm. and so forth and so on. And I went over with the family and went on top of the garage and we filled the funeral home with his watercolor paintings. That's amazing. Um, and all he ever wanted to do was go to France and he actually never did. So what I did was he had painted the Eiffel Tower. I, I took that to an engineering firm because it was bigger than anything we had at the time. And I had it scanned and we put him in front of the Eiffel Tower on one of his oil paintings and blew that up. And I <laughs> had that up on a banner. And when they came in for the viewing, uh, the wife actually went down to her knees. I was I thought, well, you did oh. it this time coming. She went over the top. Hey, have a problem. <laughs> but you're right. And, and I, don't, I, I don't know what I need to do. To, to, I, I've been Jerry and I have been begging funeral service to to follow the lead on this. Not so that I can get a pat on the back, but if you can figure out how to get that intelligence back from these families, what that it's I simply call it medicine. I've gotten to the point where what you just said, what you just explained with me, is is absolutely the medicine that's needed. And, and I'll say this too, before I forget, um, this whole thing's being orchestrated by another hand, a higher power, uh, God, whatever, whatever anybody believes is okay with me. But Rick Warren, who you're familiar with, I'm sure that wrote the book, The Purpose Driven Life. Um, yeah. He does an incredible job of explaining why we're here. And at the end of the day, I guess I can summarize it by saying to take all of our talents that we were given by the creator, by God, and to share them with everybody else that's here. And that's what this is supposed to be about. One big giant sharing, learning, healing, loving event. And if we can't at least do that at the end of life and commit ourselves to that, what I said at the National Funeral Directors Association here in Philadelphia at the Convention Center in 2016, if you're here and you're a funeral director and you don't believe that, and I didn't make any friends, I said, you should go get a job driving a concrete truck. Right. Because that's how strongly and that's how emotional I was by the end of my talk. But I believe that this, this is more than it ever was funeral service, and it's going to require more than we've ever given before. But I'm so far into this right now. I mean, they're going to they're going to put me on a stretcher and carry me out of a funeral home or out of the office here one of these days. And that'll be fine with me. The purpose, the, the island of purpose. I was just, I'm just looking at a book on my desk that I was reading recently called The Purpose Economy. And and the book goes into this element of, you know, not just experience economy, but also the purpose driven company and that being a differentiator from other companies that, yep, you know, we we're not just commoditizing products. 
uh, we are creating we are we are creating purposes, not just experiences, but purposes that drive uh, not only our customers to want to work with us, but also our employees to work for us. And I think it's really interesting how you know you were able to find purpose in in the routine by creating by unleashing your creativity, so to speak, through life celebration and through the work of Pine and Gilmore. Well, it's interesting. You know, I'm an alcoholic. I haven't had a drink, I guess, in 24 years. Um, and that's how, ironically enough, that all happened. It's all happened at the same time. And that's when I was introduced to the Purpose Driven Life by a dear, dear friend of mine, a Presbyterian uh, minister by the name of Ted Wright, um, who now lives in upstate New York. He's semi-retired. But the reason I say that is Ted knew me and he watched me because he lived in a parsonage across the street from our funeral home. And he knew deep down I was a pretty good guy, but he also saw the other side of Jimmy when he had a little too much to drink at a community event or something. So when I finally hit bottom and went over to talk to my buddy Ted, he handed me the book and he said, you need to join this 40 Days of Purpose work group that we're doing. You need to read this book. And, you know, I'm thinking, wow, how am I ever going to do all this? And I picked up the Purpose Driven Life and like right on the first page, it, it, it tells you this is not a self-help book. And by the way, this life of yours is not about you. It's about what you can do to help everybody else. And I'm going to tell you something. That was the moment that changed the course of the path of my life. For the first time in my life, I had to completely admit that this whole ride down here isn't about me. It's about helping everybody else. And then I took that thought. I'll never forget it. I came back to work and I said to Jerry Givnish, I said, read this. This is what it's all about. It's purpose. It's, it's what is your purpose here to your point? And uh, hey, let me tell you, I said it earlier, it requires one hell of a commitment. But there are so many incredibly good people out here. And I have, we have met people inside and outside of funeral service on our mission over the years that I can never, never trade the experience for anything. It's, it's been unbelievable. And, and the contributors to, to this whole movement um, are so far and wide. I have a friend of mine, Kevin Dolly, that's an experienced economy guy. That's a, he's an artist and he, and, he, and he has a company called Think in Inc. And he'll sit in a corporate boardroom and listening to the board talk about the trials and tribulations of their business. And he'll storyboard it all the way around the room. And he did it for us. And he'll, he'll have gaps on the wall. And then when an hour goes by, they'll stop and they'll look at the storyboards and they'll say, oh, my God, look, there's where we need to implement something. Or here's where we're not saying what we should be. He listened to Jerry Givnish and I talk on a rooftop restaurant out in Cincinnati a number of years ago. And the next morning we're having breakfast and he throws a pack of matches on my plate and I pick it up and here while he was listening to us, he drew a jar and he had me inside the jar. And he said to me, you can't read the directions from inside the jar. You've got to get out of your space and no indictment on funeral service, but you know, the alarm goes off and we come down the pole and out the door we go. You know, we don't practice. We just show up for the game because that's the nature of the business. So this, this whole remove yourself from it, 
get out of the environment, feel what you need to do, share, study, research. It's, it's very unfortunate, but it's been extremely hard for funeral service to do that over the years. But recently, and when I say recently, over the last 20 years and going forward, uh, this thing is really turning into a movement, and I'm just very, very lucky to be a part of it. I've read a book recently, I should say, I listened to a book called The Artist Way. And one of the, one of the, it's a well-known book because I know a lot of artists as well. Um, and I heard about it actually, you mentioned AA, I go to Al-Anon. I, I heard about it in an Al-Anon meeting. Someone's like, oh, The Artist Way, what's that? And so we start talking about it. And one of the things that's central to this book is that artistic expression is just a creative spirit being moved through you out into the world. I'm paraphrasing here, right? But that's kind of the gist. And as I was reading this book, not surprisingly, the author of the book is, is a program person, right? Mm -hmm. And so this, it was a recovery person. So mm -hmm. that person who was also an artist was kind of using, you know, the steps, the traditions, you know, the spirit of recovery to talk about artistic work, which is very similar to what you're describing with your work, but also a lot of what I find in experienced design work, quite frankly. It's that moving of spirit through oneself for the greater, uh, you know, in the, in the service of others. Well, so let me throw that over to a little bit of a technical piece. Um, our design team, we live in a, they're in a little lab on the other side of the, the room that I'm in right now. I spend most of my day in there with them. Um, there is a spirit in that room and there's a spirit in every one of them. And that's how this stuff gets created and produced. And I call it stuff. And so does Jim Gilmore, because that's, that's part of our East coast slang, but right. they put stuff together that is thematically designed unique to the person, but then includes what we talked about earlier. Everyone that was in what I call their sphere of influence in their life. You know, was it the, the you know, the baseball, when I die, and my family knows this, the Ernie Burrell experience needs to be told. And I'm not just talking about Ernie's funeral. I, I neglected to tell you something. I played a lot of sports. And as a young kid back in the early 60s and 70s, you pretty much got pushed around and told what to do. And if you said anything to the coach, you better be careful because you could get anything. Right. You know, it was a different world. I do remember those times. Yes. Well, Ernie, the first day of practice, walked up to a bunch of 10, 11, and 12-year-old kids and referred to us as gentlemen. And I will never forget that as long as I live, I'm kneeling there on that baseball field. He doesn't know me from Adam and all he's calling us all day long is gentlemen. Now, gentlemen, here's what we're going to do here. And gentlemen, here's what you're... you know, how that made me feel as a, as a 12 year old kid, I can't even put it to words. I felt like somebody just shot me up with adrenaline and filled my heart with a, with a medicine that I had never experienced before. And I know it must've felt that way because I'll tell you why I know it did. I'm still friends with some of the guys that are on that team. We wound up going through grade school and high school together. And when Ernie died, they came out of the woodwork. And he's fondly mentioned and remembered by these people. And I know 
it was that one little thing. So you have to reach back down the path of the person's life, find out what those elements are, who those people were, what it meant to not only the deceased, but their parents, their family, their lifestyle, their interests, their hobbies, how it helped frame out their personality. And my team has been through the training here. So they've been to our funeral homes locally here. They They've watched what they create unfold while a family walks into a viewing room. They, they know what it means, and they know that they only have one chance to get it right. So you should see it here, and I'd love for you to visit sometime. It's, it's worked and reworked and worked. It's almost, I guess, if you ever were on the set and watched actors, which I've had the ability to do a couple of times, how many takes and cuts and I don't think I could be an actor just for that reason, because I don't know if I would have the patience to do what they do. People, a lot of people probably don't realize it, but these young people here, that's what they do every moment of every day. And it is phenomenal. I'm looking at your, and I will post this in the show notes. Uh, I, I'm looking at the catalog, the life celebration catalog for 2020 and, and as you're describing it, I think one of the things that those young people would probably really appreciate if, you know, I was talking with them as well, is the freedom and the creativity. Again, that spirit of artisanship, of purpose moving through them that you're able to create in your organization. And it's not just the cookie cutter kind of template driven plug and play thing. It's, you know, part of them is in their work as well. And so that gets that that creates an employee experience for them which is essential to accomplishing what you're describing yeah they're not coming into the wood shop or the mill every day when they come in they don't come up the steps with the long faces we've all had those jobs right Um, and i'll tell you what the proof in the pudding was this pandemic this virus when this first hit the, the second week that it really took hold on the east coast here we we went down we went down to 25% 25% of our volume. Then we went down to 15 and we had an emergency meeting and a certain number of people here had to, had to get laid off. It was unfortunate and so forth, but I yeah. needed to keep a core group of them here. And I think there was probably eight or nine of us left to just run the, the bare bones of the operation. But you know what? Nobody said, do I have to come in? Do you really need me? Conversely, I was getting phone calls from people that were laid off. Listen, I'll come in for nothing if it'll help. I'll I'll work from home, which we did. We set a lot of people up from home. I didn't have one person walk off on me here. They, I have a group of people here that they came in. I didn't need to coax anybody because they know what it means when they can deliver what you and I are talking about to a family and to a community. And I'll never forget it. And we've had internal discussions about it. There are going to be people here, a large majority of us, that we're going to make sure they're remembered in, in many, many, many ways for a long time. It's phenomenal what they did. I mean, they literally, I mean, think about it. Two months ago, two and a half months ago, we, we literally, me being one of them, I mean, we, we thought, and I had to come in here because this is my business, but you're risking your life. I mean, there's a lot of people in this building. And at that time, nobody knew what it was. I mean, most of what we were hearing was, if you catch it, you're going to die. 
Right, and right. these these people, these young people came in here, marched in here day after day after day after day, stayed late because when the volume started to come back and we were able to figure some things out where we were actually shipping things directly to families' homes on behalf of the Life Celebration members, uh, they didn't care. They stayed here late. The, the overtime between the small group that we had here was unbelievable, but they, they didn't complain. I don't, I don't have one record of one complaint, and I was here with them every step of the way, and so was Jerry. It's, it's unbelievable. They know what this means to families, and so do the members that deliver it. The, the membership of Life Celebration is unbelievable. It's, it's more important to me than what we have here. It's the, right. it's the relationships and everything that we have. It's phenomenal. We talked before about the impact that this pandemic has had on funeral directors and, you know, just the enormity of the moment and how it's changed what it is that they do and how it is that they work. And also, you know, for people who are morticians, the potential risk that they're undertaking because with, with the unknowns associated with COVID-19 and how it's transmitted and for how long. Well, that, that, as I talked to you before, I mean, I had friends that are members uh, up in the New York market when that was really the epicenter right. call me in tears at night asking me if I had any ideas about how they were going to be able to get through this. Um, I'll tell you what. Um, and then, you know, you talk about the, the guy that owns the funeral homes up where you live in Concord and right. different areas. Yep. He drove down to New York in the middle of that and risked his life to help the other member so that he could literally survive in the business. Was um, that because they were just oh, so overwhelmed? They were mentally and physically overwhelmed, exhausted. Right. Um, just, just nothing like anybody had ever seen. Um, it was incredible. And, and I don't know how... And they all got through it and they all they all continued to minister to these families in an extraordinary way, even though they had less time and less energy than they had ever had in their lives. My buddy, Ned Brinsfield, uh, down in Charlotte Hall, Maryland, he has a couple locations and he does a very high volume and he's in his late 60s and he just never stopped. He just never stopped. And he. He communicated with me. The, the communication between the members that throughout it, and it continues now, has been unbelievable. I mean, we had weekly and bi-weekly Zoom meetings where basically we would just get on in a number of them and just bare our souls, looking for help, looking for strength, wisdom, ideas, strategizing. How, how do we deal with this? Um, and it worked. It worked. I mean, it really helped them survive. And it also helped me survive because I realized more than ever about how much more important this was, this medicine that we can deliver even in very small doses to society. Um, but the camaraderie and the fraternity that we have here uh, is what I dreamed of way back when, because what I didn't want to create was a print shop and a mutual admiration society. Um, there's, <laughs> There's enough of them out there, Gary. Everybody likes right. to sit around and talk about how great they are. Uh, I like to sit around and talk about how great everybody else is. Well, I think that's a key part of it. And I, I was 
you know, as this pandemic is shifting and moving, I mean, in Massachusetts, we're doing pretty well. In New York, they're doing better. But I'm looking at your 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 membership roster, you know, you, that you call the community. You got members in, in Arizona, in Texas, in California, I think in Arizona. Um, but you have members, not in Arizona, but around the country, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia. Are you seeing this shift in your own work as the pandemic spikes in different areas? Oh yeah. I mean, it goes up and it goes down based on the, on the circumstances, just like it did here. And funny you mentioned that because, um, a funeral home down in Texas this morning was on Facebook, uh, sharing with the rest of the members, some of the struggles they're having because it's really spiking up high down there and how they're staying with the pace. And, uh, you know, as, as Murphy's law would have it, this was the time they picked to do a lot of construction on their facility, but, the glory of it is, is that they have the ability to talk, to reach out, to get it off their chest, and then to get response from the other members as the ebbs and flow of this thing go um, based on the situation. And and it's, it's helping them deal with it as much as it's helping the family deal with it. And, and so as opposed to a mutual admiration society, well, I'll go ahead and say it. It is a program. It's not, it's not AA and it's not Al-Anon, but it's some type of a, of a program that creates and forms a ministry that through the goodwill and purpose of everybody that's a member, you've always got somebody to reach out to and you always have somebody to grab onto, almost like having a sponsor in AA. And yeah, I was just going to you I was just going to say, it sounds like a sponsor. You need a, you need a sponsor because if you, if you, if you go to a wedding and you haven't had a drink in six months and all of a sudden the band strikes up and in the old days, you'd, you'd just be out there doing everything that, that you always wanted to. And, and you can't. And this is a situation that when you get beat down, beat up, because these funeral people work, we all look pretty going down the sheet, down the street in the shiny Lincolns and Cadillacs leading the procession to the church or to the cemetery or whatever, it looks pretty glorious. But when you come back and you get into the minutia of the functionality that has to take place, the, the administrative things, and then I'll say it again, um, most of the people that own and operate funeral homes have figured it out themselves because they obviously didn't have the educational background particularly in psychology, to be able to do it. So it's, it's learning on the job. But now we needed, we needed to go outside of that. And that's what Pine and Gilmore, they opened that door for us to realize that if you really want to fix funeral service, you're not going to fix it from inside. I, Jerry Gibnish says, you know, we, a convention would come up and, and he'd say, well, do you think we should go? And I, and I would talk about it and he'd say, you know what? All they're going to be doing there is pouring old wine into new bottles and telling you it's new. <laughs> um, and that's not an indictment on the profession. But unfortunately, uh, many times that's what you would see. So this is a creative dynamo of, of similarly minded people. I'm, I'm afraid to say like minded because I, I'm not sure that's appropriate. Similarly minded all with uh, the same end game 
as my friend from Batesville Casket Company, Jack Locker, used to say, he used to holler to me, end game, Jimmy, end game, Jimmy, <laughs> when, when I would become frustrated. And I credit Jack for that because you have to keep your focus. And, and that's sometimes very difficult. It's difficult to do in life, let alone sure. this business. And with, with things being online more, have you had calls? Have you started to do more products for video, audio production of, of life, life memorials and experiences and celebrations? Yeah, well, our, uh, we, we have. We, we did a video production here. Um, it's it's kind of weaned down a little bit now, but um, it was called Healing at Home, where funeral homes were filming parts, bits and pieces of the service, sometimes all the way through, uh, sometimes just at the funeral home. And then we would take the information and intellectual properties that we got from the funeral home about the family and blend some of the service clips and video into that and then blend in some of the other information and theme it out and go get assets and create things from different hobbies, interests and lifestyles and then stream that back to the funeral home or back to the family. And that was very, very, very helpful. I'll tell you that. I believe that was the catalyst for people realizing that if they took the proper precautions, they could come back to a space, whether it was a funeral home or a church or even outside, which I did. We did prepare a lot of things for outdoor outside life celebrations. And it kind of, because I'll go back to what you said earlier, sense of community. It's a lot easier at some point to heal with a group than it is to try to fix everything yourself. Yep. It's like, that's why we go to meetings. That's right. That's right. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Even now, even like, you know, with the virtual stuff, I mean, it's, it's not, what's one of the things we're wrestling with in higher education, right? Is, you know, what you, what happens in the classroom is part of it for the students. A larger part of it is that hopefully that campus experience, that sense of building community, of being co-present and having those shared moments, which are just as important in so many ways as what happens in the classroom. And, and what can you do in the absence of that if and when colleges don't open up as usual in the fall? Well, you know, my son-in-law, one of my son-in-laws, Angelo, is a special education teacher in Central Bucks school system here outside of Philadelphia. And he's experiencing that firsthand because they had all the distance learning. And now they're talking about the fact that the distance learning may continue. Um, I can't repeat the stories that he's experienced with some of his students, but that will not happen with distance learning. I mean, some of those children need to be able to come up and hold your hand and talk to you or walk outside. Uh, And and it is a, a tragedy, just like. You know, it's, it's remarkable. Here we are. Just like a funeral where you can't get together with anybody is as bad as a student. And I believe it's worse with the student because their whole life's ahead of them. And yet they can't reach out. They can't touch. They can't feel. They can't smell. It's, it's all of those senses are being sterilized that, through distance learning. Now, listen, you and I are having a pretty deep, meaningful conversation here. And I'm feeling it. I'm sure you are as well. And there's an incredible value 
in this. But quite frankly, if I come up to Boston in another month or so and we have a get together with our group and you're sitting in the room with us and we're eye to eye and face to face and we're sharing, there's no replacing that. And I think that goes for funerals. It goes for students with the distance learning. Um, this is a very, very delicate and critical situation. And I, I hope that the sharing of best practices and principles and what people are learning throughout this pandemic are shared the way that they need to be and not just learned and then put back in a closet someplace. We are definitely trying to struggle with what it means to be together. I mean, so much of going back to your work, you know, if you take the the, the journey, right, journey map, a person ending up requiring funeral services, you know, the family member not being able to be in the hospital with the person while he or she is, is dying. And so there's isolation there. The person being removed and, and being isolated from touch that, you know, while they're being cared for. I mean, everything about right now is this idea of isolation, um, self-isolation. And, you know, how do we try to reconstruct a, 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 an experience of connectedness in the midst of this thing. And what happens if you rush that, then you, then you can make it worse, right? Well, People being so starved for it and then they rush out and, you know, do silly things. I would say silly things. And then you end up getting these spikes and it goes back around over again. Well, it's amazing. Um, I said it for the first time, maybe about two years ago in front of a group of people I was speaking and, I got all kinds of crazy looks. I said, the best thing that ever happened to funeral service was cremation. And everybody gasped because there's no casket, there's no urn, many times there's no funeral. I said, it it challenged us to build Mm. a life around a box on on a pedestal. Sure. And if you think about What happened between that and then getting into the pandemic, we were then challenged to the nth degree to do the same thing, except much more difficult because virtually, right, virtually, and then try to get paid for it. Okay, I mean, let's let's be honest. I mean, funeral service is a business. We we need our margins. We need our revenue to survive in our funeral homes and. Those people that were already on the scent or on the path of doing this either on their own, which there are many, I know a lot of funeral homes that are not members of Life Celebration that have figured it out themselves and they do an unbelievable job. And I chase them all the time to join because I need them <laughs> more right. than they need me. Uh, and some of them come on board. I just, it's funny. I just had a guy down in Maryland join. This is unbelievable. 13 years ago, we met for the first time <laughs> and, and he joined finally. And, and, and it was almost like just in time because he joined just a few months before this hit and the resources that he realized he had, that he wasn't consistently deploying the people skills and then us as a resource with our many platforms that we can help with. It was like perfect timing. And I'll tell you what, he got through this as well and continues to. 
as members that we've had here that are, I believe the oldest one is outside of the Give the Shones of Philadelphia is in their uh, 14th year. That's, that's, well, that's good. You know, good for you for taking 13 years. It sounds like when I was uh, trying to get my wife to marry me, um, <laughs> not quite as long as that, but you know, <laughs> diligence sometimes does, does pay off. You'd have to ask her if it did for her, but you know, so far so good. That tells me, <laughs> that so, tells me a lot about you. So you're, you're a guy that we need to our club, Gary, because if you're that persistent, well, yeah. whew. Well, I, sometimes they got to be right. And I, yeah. I would, I would say that, uh, it's on the one hand, it's not surprising to me that, uh, you know, a couple of guys from Philly are starting trouble of some kind Yeah, that this happens to be in the funeral business. But I think people from Philly are always starting some kind of trouble. Well, that tends to be what you, what y'all do down there. Jerry, Jerry Givnish said quite a few years ago, and I kind of, I kind of, uh, flinched when he did it in front of a bunch of people. He said, you know, tell me about life celebration. How do you do this? How do you do that? He said, you have to be disruptive. You know, right. you have to swim against the tide and you have to be disruptive. And I don't know how many people leap out of bed in the morning with that attitude um, in a good way, mind you. Um, and I do. And I, my, my, I was at my house in the mountains yesterday and my son-in-law had to come back down to the city to do something with a property that he has. And I'm marching around the house like, like the Tasmanian devil ready to go out and get my car. And, uh, and he said, boy, you look like you're geared up. And I said, well, it's Monday morning and, uh, the world's expecting me to be part of it today. And I got to get out there and I got to get to work. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, so if you can develop an attitude like that, and there's so many, so many passionate people out there. I just hope that funeral service can use a lot of what we just talked about to attract more people to be part of this, what I'll call, and Frank Joyce up in, in Waltham calls this movement of, of right. ours and of funeral service. Uh, and I'm looking forward to continuing it as long as I can. Well, it's Jim, it's been great chatting with you. I really appreciate you taking the time on what I know is a, always a busy time, but especially now. And definitely learned a lot about life celebrations and just how you're being, you know, again, guys from Philly being disruptive, not unusual. <laughs> but, but a disruption with a purpose, right? To, to create a certain movement around end of life experiences. Well, we're looking to um, bring people back to a place that they're comfortable, where they can effectively grieve, heal, and then believe it or not, celebrate, which tees them up to be able to travel the path of the rest of their own life. And that's what this is all about. Yeah, it's a good place to end. Thanks a lot, Jim. Appreciate it. We want to thank Jim Cummings of Life Celebrations for taking time out of his incredibly busy schedule and all of his innovations to talk about his revolutionary approach to memorial experience design and the challenges of working as a funeral director in the COVID environment. What kinds of life celebrations have you witnessed and experienced? Let us know your perspectives on memorial and funeral experiences at our Experience by Design LinkedIn page and contribute your thoughts. And of course, you can always communicate with us at feedback at experiencexdesign.com. That's experience with the letter X design.com. We love hearing from you and getting ideas and just sharing and swapping cool stories and enjoy having your feedback as well. Let's us know what's working and what you want to hear more of. We love hearing from you. We'll see you all next week. Bye.